the politics of education, policy making and implementation generate reams of interest within both mainstream media as also within policy fora. There is no shortage of books, slanted television debates, documentaries, films, and more recently, even podcasts and social media outpourings that attempt to ask and also tell what is wrong, what is right, what has to be changed, what should not be changed in education. And in all that noise, one of the most important and revolutionary changes in policy making, a success has gone unremarked. Not unnoticed, just unremarked. Professor Myron Wiener has written what still remains the definitive book on education policy making in India. That book came out in 1991. Professor Wiener, and I'm sure announcing that wrong, had ended his book with a bleak prophecy. India's global share of illiterates and child laborers will continue to increase. He was wrong. What changed in India? What changed in the policies that we implemented? What changed in the way we approached education? What changed on the ground? What changed in schools, in homes, in the social, political and economic environments that made it possible for this country to prove that prophecy wrong. This is a policy success whose story has for some reason not been told. Welcome to Baroque Conversations, the art and craft of public policy. Those statements of intent that have the power to inspire, to amplify some voices, as also to silence some others. A podcast amongst fellow travelers. This is a pause in the journey, a time to catch your breath, to reflect, to remember. Please welcome your host, Vijay Lakshmi Balakrishnan. India was able to prove doomsayers wrong due to one small government program, the exceptional. Mahila Samakya. And today we have with us Dr. Vimla Ramachandran, the founder, the first national director, and lifetime. One of the unsung heroes who made sure that this happened. The success story of India, which no one remarks on and which perhaps needs to be known. Uh, Vimla Ramachandran, welcome. Hi. Hi, Vijay Lakshmi. 
<laughs> Thank you. Vimla, I just wanted to just take you back to the time when you were college lecturer and you were teaching in, in Delhi University. And oh, um, well, I was teaching in a course, college called Janaki Devi Mahavidyalaya, which is part of Delhi University. And hmm. it is primarily a Hindi medium college. And it essentially caters to uh, girls from middle class and low middle class families. And I really enjoyed my work. I, th- I think I was one of the few people who was very happy and happy teaching. But however, what I found very disconcerting was that uh, young women who came up to college level were very few and far between. And also that the kind of education they got actually ended up puncturing their confidence rather than enhancing their confidence. And many people are probably aware that the late 1970s and 1980s in India, there was a very vibrant women's movement. And as a college lecturer, uh, I was very much part of the women's movement, whether it was fighting against the whole dowry business, which was happening in, uh, in all over North India, mostly, and also the whole issue of child marriage. But somewhere along that line, when I was so um, deeply involved in the feminist movement of Delhi, what struck me was that uh, none of the feminist organizations or even Dalit organizations took any great interest in school education. And I felt that that was a space where a lot needed to be done. And I started uh, volunteering and and going around the country with looking at groups who are working with women. And I used to really wonder why education was never on their list. And this was the time when there was this very vibrant uh, women's empowerment program in Rajasthan, which was called the Women's Development Program of Rajasthan, which started in 1984. Because I have a home in Jaipur, I used to come and leave my child with my mother-in-law during during the vacations. And I used to go and see what was happening in the field. And this further reinforced my own belief and my observation that uh, women and girls' education required a lot more attention than it had got. And that is how, that is what started off my whole personal journey with respect to girls and women's education. Vimla, this was the 80s and there had already been a lot of work which had happened, you know, on adult education. That work had already started. And this was a time when I was still just entering the sector. And I still remember very often, whenever we'd go into a meeting, you'd have these men would come in and say, you know, we do these adult literacy classes and we meant them for the men and all these women came. And it was like, they were really surprised that women were interested in education. Why was that? What what was the gap? How come they didn't seem to realize that women would want to be educated? It seems like a no-brainer. In the mid-1970s, the government of India had started something called the National Adult Education Program, which was really a center-based program that NGOs were given money to run adult education centers. 
and NGOs of all kinds, NGOs which were working with men, with women, NGOs which are primarily subcontractors in the development field. But it somehow nobody really thought of why it was important for women to be uh, in, uh, part of this whole uh, literacy or adult education. It was not called literacy those days. It was called adult education. And um, it, it was, it's quite interesting that I was uh, sort of tangentially involved in doing an evaluation of the National Adult Education Program. And I had gone to Banaras district and I found a really very, very shocked to find that many of these centers were only on paper. And there was this one center which was being run by this NGO, which had got a lot of money at that time. And they said that they were running centers for women and I did not see a single woman there. But when I gave this feedback to the ministry, they did not like that feedback. They felt that uh, it was not the right feedback and that I was being prejudiced. But later on, I found out that there were many evaluations that were done of the National Adult Education Program. Mm -hmm. But I'll just mention that many people did evaluations because the government had commissioned a lot and they were all just dumped in one room. And many of the evaluations said this, that men were really not that interested, but they did not reach out to women. But interestingly, in 1989, 90, <laughs> when the same ministry wanted to dump the National Adult Education Program and start the total literacy campaign, at <laughs> that time I was already in the ministry. I was uh, one day told that go through all these evaluations and make a justification for closing down the National Adult Education Program. I was quite aghast. I said, you know, everybody gave you this feedback from 1975-76 onwards and mostly between 77 and 80, 82. And at that time, uh, MHRD or, or whatever, Ministry of Education, I was not uh, interested in looking at the evaluations, but the day they wanted to discontinue the NAEP program, they got me to actually uh, go through all the evaluations and make a case for closing it down. So I found that very interesting. This is actually has a lot to do with uh, how our education system or even our entire uh, government system was completely unaware or not wanting to be aware about the need for women's education and women's literacy. And in fact, I, the only thing I can say is that it was a very male-centered uh, movement of a program. Mm. And it was a very bureaucracy-driven program. And the NGOs who got it also were also male-dominated. And uh, none of the women's groups I knew or the women's organizations I knew had actually um, taken any projects under the NAEP. So that's a different story, actually, the whole NAEP story. Some days somebody should say it. Someone like Anita Dige hmm. will be a good person to tell that story. Unfortunately, uh, two, three other people who were part of it are no more. They have passed on. Yeah. Like Anita Call and uh, Vinod Raina and people like that who were also aware of the shortcomings of the NAEP. Was it a resistance to working on women's issues or was it just an agenda blindness? Because 
if you look at the 1990s, the state comes out almost like a natural ally to the cause of women's education. And yet, if you look at the 70s and the 80s, as you're, as you're sharing, it was not the case. I mean, you would not have seen the state as an ally in anything but in passive resistance or would be... I have sort of written about this a little bit in that Cartographies of Empowerment hmm. in, uh, in Making of Maila Samakya. Hmm. My understanding is threefold. One is, I don't think there's, I, I think uh, the bureaucracy was generally disinterested in, in women or the agency of women. And, uh, but there were a couple of uh, officers who were at least claimed to be, or who showed a great deal of interest in the whole issue of women's empowerment and women's agency. Mm-hmm. And one of them was, of course, Anil Bodia, who was also the architect of the National Adult Education Program. And he himself was the architect of the Total Literacy Campaign. And he yes. was also the architect, or should I say, the driving force behind Maila Samakya. But I think one has to understand the ambiguity in his own head. I do not know why, but I must say that maybe his experience after the Women's Development Program of Rajasthan, which he also initiated, changed his perception. In 1975, uh, Dr. Veena Mazumdar, the late Dr. Veena Mazumdar, had chaired this committee on the status of women in India. And that was that report came out in 1975. Of course, the women's movement took notice of that. In fact, I must say, I drew a lot of energy from that report. Yes. And the whole section on education was brilliantly written. Yes. It talks about the whole attitude towards women's education from colonial times through the Congress, the ambiguities, the different people involved, and also the whole question of, of should women get the same kind of education as men do? I think after the Status of Women report, there was this Shram Shakti report, which was chaired by uh, Ila Bhatt. Both these reports were very, very significant because they talked about women in a many holistic manner. They didn't, they didn't divide, uh, divide women up into her womb and her mind and her hands, hmm. but looked at women uh, in totality. And uh, someday it is important to visit some of these uh, documents because it provided a lot of energy to people like us who were at that time teaching in the university, but very, very active on, in the streets of Delhi, uh, agitating against uh, a lot of things that were happening during the 80s and se- late 70s and 80s. Because I finished my uh, education in 79 and I started teaching in 79. So it's quite interesting how th- through the late 70s and early 80s, a lot of research started coming out. In India, the, the state says a lot of beautiful things in terms of policies. But it is up to individuals who are in positions of power to actually translate those policies into reality or ignore those policies. So I think we've had a very progressive education policy starting from the 60s. Mm -hmm. But somehow um, the bureaucrats who were in power at different points of time in different states never really gave much importance to the education of all. Now, I want to talk about another parallel movement that was happening globally, 
there was this whole education for all conference which started which happened in 1990 in Jomtian Jom uh, yeah and then uh, there again there was this huge international push for gender equality and not only gender equality but also social equity in terms of access so in India, while uh, people, the number of schools were gradually increasing from, say, 1952 onwards, but you see a real jump after 1990. Yes. Look at the data, you see a huge jump. Mm. That is because, I think, of the international pressure. And uh, interestingly, when they wanted to start uh, many of these uh, basic education projects across the country, they were able to do it with foreign funding and not with domestic resources. And uh, I remember when the DPEP was uh, formulated and uh, came into action in 1994, I must say that the donors were the ones who pushed for gender equality in all indicators. And gender equality meaning that they wanted to increase the number of women participating in education. That was a very limited view, but whatever limited the view was, it was a very important uh, perspective. And Remember, whether it was the uh, British ODA yeah. or, the, or the Swedish or the Netherlands government, which actually supported the Maila Samagya program, or the World Bank or the UNICEF or UNESCO, all of them in one voice started talking about the importance of uh, of gender e equality when it came to educational access. But you also must remember, this was also the time when the, I forget the date, there was this famous Nairobi Women's Conference. Mm. And then there was these, there were these various women's conferences internationally with that happened, which also pushed for these. So I think the international climate uh, changed. And when government of India started taking money from international donors for primary education, they had no choice but to introduce gender or, or bridging gender gaps as one of the most important objectives of the okay. education policy. If I look at the 86 policy, for example, it was already coded in there. In fact, what makes the 86 policy special, I often feel, is that it put girls and women's education front and center, which really was not the case before, even though you had abysmal numbers, the 86 policy was... Uh, was you must before. remember, 86 policy came after Towards Equality report and after the yeah. Shakti report. And people like Dr. Veena Mazumdar, Dr. Sharda Jain, Aruna Roy, and many of these people whom we know today as being the champions were the people who actually wrote those uh, paragraphs. And... When that paragraph on education for women's equality was written, many people said, I mean, they just did not think it was anything serious. But uh, Vijayalakshmi, you might also read, if you read the whole document, hmm. gender is not mainstream in the document. Gender no. and women's equality is only in section four or chapter four. Yes. It is not in anywhere else. When they talk about scheduled caste and scheduled tribe, there they don't talk about women. Yeah, they only talk about scheduled class and scheduled tribe. When they talk about teachers, they don't talk about women. When they talk about vocational education or technical education, they don't talk about women. So there was a subcommittee for writing this chapter uh, four, 
Hmm. Where people like Dr. Sharda Jain and one and Bina Mazumdar were there, and they wrote that. You see, now in India, policy, progressive policies come far before anybody actually takes any action. But in reality, yes, you you're right. The eighty-six policy sounds much better than the sixty-eight policy when it comes to women. But at least 68 policy was very equity oriented. It talked about a common school system. It talked about the importance of all children going to the same kind of school. There was a shift, but I don't know whether that shift meant that all the recommendations of the 86 policy were to be implemented. When you look back, what did they do with 86 policy section four? They asked Shilata Bhatliwala and me. By which time we were seen as young women who are quite agitated and involved in women's uh, struggles, to write a project that would help them translate the Section Four of the policy, and that is how Maila Samakya came up. But they did not mainstream issues of gender equality in the main education system. It only had we had to wait till 1994 when. Uh, district primary education was introduced that somebody said oh you know the donors came and said but what about gender equality what about bridging gender gaps so mm-hmm. you know the government works in silos policies are also in silos very very sections the women section was very much a silo in in the 86 policy Yes, and even very powerful side it was. I I would I would completely agree with your analysis of that. You know that actually is what would bring me to to what was and perhaps at that point one was too young and one didn't even understand how absolutely revolutionary Samakya was. Samakya. was not just the words that were written up right it wasn't just about women's empowerment it was also the way it was operationalized which made it so special you know open market uh, recruitment across all from leadership positions right down to field level positions all very revolutionary how did that happen because this is even today i don't see any other program where you have national leadership being taken from outside the state system and the state bureaucratic networks and at that point samakya was able to do that and that i still feel often is the reason for its success and the kind of energy that it had and no actually uh i would ask everyone to read that making of maila samakya and cartographies of empowerment Mm. first we came up with this conceptual document on called education for women's equality yes. and then the government of india wanted to implement it but then uh, they only got permission to implement it provided it was 100% funded from abroad so the royal netherlands embassy uh, government law royal netherlands government very kindly um, agreed to uh, fund this project and when they funded this project um you see it was a very difficult concept so then uh, anil bodia at that time I, w- i was just a consultant in the ministry who had helped after writing the concept paper to help them with the initial steps i was brought on deputation from delhi university to the ministry just for one year to help them write up the document and stuff at that time i think uh, anil bodia 
realized that uh, a, a run-of-the-mill uh, administrative service officer would not be able to uh, take on this challenge because this meant working at all different levels. It meant interacting equally with rural women to women outside the system. So I think I must say that the credit goes to Anil Bodia to a certain extent and his advisors, his advisors at that point of time would have been people like Aruna Roy and Dr. Sharda Jain in a very big way. He was also very impressed with people like Sheila Patel and Anita Dige and Lakshmi Krishnamurti. So he actually brought together this group, which he called the National Resource Group of people to help him think through how this uh, project uh, concept document on Maila Samakya could be uh, operationalized. And uh, I must say many people, including people like Madhu Kishwar, actually poo-pooed it and said, oh, this is just all uh, wonderful words or nothing will come into action. But I think that is where some of us who were part of that group said, no, it can be done. And then a challenge was thrown to me saying that, uh, will you head it and uh, launch it? I, I was not a government servant, so I had to be brought from outside, initially on deputation from Delhi University. And uh, later on, they gave me a early contract, but uh, I was never a full-time civil servant. I never had the drawing and dispersing powers and I didn't have many of the administrative powers. But there were a couple of other officers in the ministry, especially at the undersecretary level, who were given the financial powers. And, and one very amazing gentleman called Amitabh Mukhopadhyay, who is no longer alive, unfortunately passed away about a few years ago. Uh, he was... Um, he was the person who actually handled the administration and finance when it came to Mahila Samakya. But uh, he was an incredible person, I must say. So uh, though I did not have financial powers, uh, I did not have the administrative power as they call drawing and dispersing authority. Yeah. I could not sign on these so-called DO letters, uh, which the government sends out. Yes, uh, I had to work very closely with uh, with Amitabh, and there was another joint secretary there at that point of time who was not in this department, but she was in adult education called Anita Call. Yes, and uh, between Anita Call and Amitabh Mukhopadhyay and me, and uh, with with a lot of support from another IAS officer called Kiran Dingra, we actually were the foursome who tried to make this happen. Because whenever I, you, I, I must say in the first year between 1988, uh, March and March of 1989, I must have traveled uh, to about 20 districts and finally the 10 districts. And I was out of, I was out traveling for at least three to four days a week. In fact, I made 42 trips in that one year. Okay. Um, Interestingly, I've kept all my old notes from those days. Um, so it was quite interesting that I used to go and uh, actually meet people, get the process going, uh, talk to people, get advice. And uh, someone like Amita Mukhopadhyay and uh, Anita Call used to do a lot of the administrative backstopping. 
And this was also the time when Anita Call was made the director of the National Literacy Campaign. So very often the two of us used to travel together, especially mm -hmm. to Karnataka, Gujarat, and UP, which were the Maila Samakya states. Because we found, she found the Maila Samakya idea very important for her adult literacy program. And when this whole uh, anti-liquor movement started and all that uh, under the adult literacy program, I think we both drew strength from each other, a lot of strength from each other. So I must say, yes, I was technically the head of Maila Samakya. I was the national project director. But remember, I did not, I was never a full-fledged administrator with all the administrative powers, even though I did all the work. I even wrote the uh, expenditure finance committee memo. I prepared the budgets and everything had to be then uh, signed off by Amitabh or by Kiran or by Anita or what, whoever it was. And I think it was a teamwork. It was never an individual work. Uh, yes, uh, Maila Samakya drew its inspiration to a large extent from the Women's Development Program of Rajasthan and also of Spark Maila Milan of Bombay. Yes. And you know, Srilata had come from Maila Milan, uh, Bombay, Spark and Maila Milan. So many of the governing principles of the program uh, were drawn from these two by the mistakes which we made on, under, uh, under Women's Development Program, which we didn't want to repeat here. And some of the positive experiences of Women's Development Program. Similarly, a lot of the positive insights from Sparks, Maila Milan. But during this period, I, I, because I traveled so much, I met so many other women's organizations. So we really drew a lot of strength and ideas from people. In fact, I was only a 34-year-old college lecturer who had had no such exposure. But I think that one year of intensive traveling and interacting, uh, came, when I came back, uh, Anil Bodia said, I need a short note for justifying Maila Samakya. So in that short note, um, basically I said, why are women... Uh, excluded from education, okay? And we talked about either because they are poor or because of the, there are the factors that enable women's participation in education are, are really not addressed. And at that point of time, uh, taking from towards equality report, we talked about uh, social norms, we talked about economic norms, we talked about the burden of work of women, we talked about the whole uh, problem of child marriage. And we also talked about the of the inherently uh, uh, truncated access to education, which was essentially only for the well-off. For the very poor, they were going to government schools and government schools were very few and far between. The numbers of government schools only started increasing in 1990s. So I think uh, when we did that first document, which was still popularly known as the Green Book. Mm. Um, we talked about the root causes of uh, women's uh, disempowerment in education and how it is connected with, <clears throat> with our whole attitude towards women and also negating the knowledge that women have. <coughs> uh, I'm just taking a pause, I need to drink some water. Okay, uh, one of the very interesting uh, aspects of that was that when uh, 
uh, when we when we realized that women were a storehouse of a tremendous amount of knowledge, whether it came to trees, whether it came to agriculture, whether it came to music, whether it came to any aspect of life, women knew a lot. So being literate and being knowledgeable are two different things. You can be highly literate and be and not have that kind of knowledge and you can be illiterate and be highly knowledgeable in your particular situation. So respecting women's knowledge, respecting the knowledge that they have and what they bring into the adult literacy class. Um, this was a time when even in adult literacy, Anita and others had commissioned a primer, uh, which um, the iconic uh, Savdar Hashmi wrote. Uh, it was also about this, that you know you have to start by respecting women's knowledge. And yes, once you respect their knowledge and, and you bring them into an environment where they're respected, they're acknowledged, then literacy is just a skill. For a, for a 35 or 40 year old woman who's been working in agriculture or who's been weaving baskets or who's been going to the forest to collect forest produce, she has a lot of knowledge. Now, why, are we, why do we think that that knowledge is not the, the right kind of knowledge women should have? So I think this whole approach towards um, approach towards respecting and starting with where women are understanding the barriers that have kept them away from education has to be the first step towards um, making it easy for women to participate in education. Unless you address the barriers, it's not going to happen. You know, Bimla, now when you, when you say this, it seems like obvious, you know, it seems so obvious, but at that time, it was not easy to convince anyone to make these kinds of investments. I mean, if Myron Wiener was able to write that kind of, write like that about us as a, as a country and make those kinds of predictions about the country, he was basing it on decades of knowledge of India and the and also a very Western colonial approach to third world countries. I'm sorry. Yes, completely this agree. Is, completely, I don't. I am not disagreeing with you on that. The only one which where I'm coming from on this was to ask: is there was there was a logic to where he was coming from, and it was a logic which keeps getting which is which is bought regularly that the real problem are the elites and the real problem are uh, is a particular mindset which wants to keep uh, women down which wants to keep a set of people down uh, it is it is not coded in the way you were coding it which is about saying that there are barriers let's look at those barriers and let's soften those and let's make those disappear and then this can happen so the way where you were coming from was uh, less about uh, resistance and much more about respect and dignity. Uh, today, that seems like, yes, of course, that is the way to go. At that time, working within the system was could not have been easy. No, it wasn't easy at all. But let us also remember that the global climate with respect to uh, uh, understanding women's agency and women's empowerment had changed not only in India, but through, throughout the West. And, uh, and to a large extent, South America had seen. 
and also that was also the peak of uh, people believing in the Freire and Paulo Freire's whole um, uh, concept of pedagogy of the oppressed <laughs> and why we need to bring in their language, their vocabulary, their experiences into the teaching learning process. And excluding that means you're excluding a very, very important chunk of their lived reality. So uh, I don't think we were alone. In fact, uh, I must say, um, I'm going to digress a little bit, but when uh, a couple of international uh, people read the Myla Samakya document, the, the main document, many of them said it was very Freirean. Yeah. And uh, there were people who, who reached out from all over the world to say, what a brilliant Freirean document it is without using any of the Freirean uh, terminologies. Yes. Uh, we were writing for an audience which needed to be explained in very simple, non-jargonic kind of uh, language. So, uh, so it, it was actually I, I had read Freire and Illich and all a lot by, by that time. And uh, you must have also heard of the whole uh, education movement in South America at that time. Hmm. Uh, and also, let us remember that uh, that when certain cultural and economic and social barriers are removed, girls' participation in education went up enormously in China. Uh, let us remember that China, for, for all what we may criticize, uh, made primary education and education for everyone a priority immediately after the revolution. They opened all schools and colleges to everyone. And uh, they addressed some of these deep-rooted cultural uh, issues so, which prevented women from going beyond a particular level. And uh, so it was not the, this whole uh, alternative approach to education was not confined to India alone. In fact, I must say that uh, just before Myla Samakya was formally launched, government of India had facilitated a trip for me to go and spend a couple of uh, many weeks in China with the All China Women's Federation, uh, going from province to province, trying to understand how they're organized, who goes to school, who doesn't go to school, what are the issues. So many, the, many of these old practices in China had actually been quote unquote outlawed because it was a communist government, they were able to do it. And uh, children's participation in education of boys and girls actually went up significantly. So for me, that was a very, uh, it was a very important eye-opening experience, even though there were many issues which I was very, uh, very upset about because I went in 1989, just before the Tiananmen Square thing happened. Mm. But uh, there were many things that I learned from the women in China. Uh, because when you ask them, how, how are you able to become a doctor? Or how did you able to become a teacher? They all said, you know, if it was the pre-revolutionary China, we women would not have been allowed outside the, outside the house. So you have to remove those social and cultural and, and very important structural barriers to participation. Well, because of the communist revolution, that those structural barriers were removed by diktat. But in India, we had to we had to address these structural barriers from below, ground up. 
In fact, I must, I would like to make a contrast. I remember at that point of time, uh, after, after Maila Sambhaki was started, um, I was, I wrote a piece uh, saying that, you know, uh, it is so important to convince parents, mothers and fathers that their, their daughter should be sent to school and sent to, be sent to school beyond class uh, six, okay? And I was, I was looking at my notes yesterday and, and in 19, uh, in, 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 by 1999, 90, or in 98-99, uh, Sharda Jain writes this most beautiful sentence saying that the tragedy in India is not that parents don't want to send their children to school, their girls to school. The tragedy is that our school system, it, it does not make that experience worthwhile for them. And they remain in school for five years and don't learn anything. And that becomes a demotivating factor. So you can just see how much the situation had changed. Where in the in early 90s, I was talking about convincing parents to send girls to school. And by 1988, 1999, I think the even the poorest of the poor realized the value of sending their children to school. And the tragedy today is that the val that value is being um, is being negated because children go into school and they are not able to read and write even after they reach class five. And that is why I feel that this new thrust in the new education policy on foundational literacy is so important because you have to see a tangible outcome. You can't see your child going to school day after day just eating the midday meals and learning a few nursery rhymes and coming back and in class five, they can't even read or write a postcard to their mother saying that I am well. So what in the 1990s was a period of enormous transition in India. Yes. Also because of globalization, because of the extent of the penetration of the media. I think to a certain extent per capita income also went up, job opportunities expanded and uh, it was, it was, I mean, for me itself in the field, I was in Maila Samakya till 1993. After that, I, my contract wasn't renewed and I just left uh, the government. And since then it's been an IAS officer who was in charge till 2014 when the government has just withdrawn the Maila Samakya program. Uh, so even this thing of having external people as leaders in these program was very short lived only lasted for the first six years of the program. Yes, but why was that? You see, one of the things which was happening, and I came in a little bit after you did, uh, and I got involved at a much more of a trench level of, of the work on education. And I still remember that much of the initial discussion and through much of the 1990s, much, the discussion used to be about the friction between the non what are now called non-profits and at that time were called NGOs uh, and the state and especially the uh, bureaucratic apparatus of the state. And yet when we actually examine it more closely, the real friction should probably have been about the quality of the leadership and actually what was the leadership doing because after a point it becomes, it became mechanical. Bureaucratic. Yes, it became... And, but not um, in the field, huh? No, not at all. In fact, very often I, I the kind of quality you met in the field, you felt bad that they didn't 
don't have a bigger canvas to work in. I mean, the quality that I've met in, say, places like Assam, Madhya Pradesh, amazing. Really high quality women. Uh, no, that's because our, uh, one thing with Maila Samakya, I think, pioneered was, let me go step by step. I mean, this is a long story. One is we had to draft recruitment rules, okay? Yes. And then when I drafted the recruitment rule, Mr. Bodia said, this is not going to pass muster any bureaucracy. Why? Because I said, we will first identify, we, there will be some basic qualifications. Of course, we said, for a Sahyogini, she should be at least 12th class pass. For a resource person, she should be at least have a graduation. All that was accepted. But we also said that the selection will be done through a process of, through a, in a workshop mode where we had to ascertain three things. One, that the person is free of caste and community bias. Hmm. That if anybody says that uh, the cook in the, work, in the workshop is Dalit and I cannot eat the food that she's cooked, then uh, that person has, cannot be taken into the program. So we had to look for people who were free of caste and community biases. Or somebody would say, I don't want to eat food cooked by a Muslim, or I don't want to sit next to a Muslim, these kind of things. The second thing was that we wanted them to have some degree of commitment to the cause of, uh, cause of equality and justice. So we used to have a lot of interesting games. Those days they were called PRA techniques. I think today also they're called those. To actually ascertain what is the level of motivation uh, and commitment a person has towards issues of social e equality, uh, social justice, not necessarily gender justice, social justice. And third, that the person should be able to travel and to be able to move around. You can't join it and then say, sorry, uh, my community does, will not allow me to go out of my village or I can't come for a training program. So we had to negotiate a lot of these things. And uh, I remember when, I, when we went to Karnataka for doing the first round of, of uh, recruitment, there was an officer there who told us, I'm forgetting her name, that why don't you go and look at these women uh, in the whole uh, institution set up for Devdasi women and see if you can pick girls from there because all of them are 12th class pass. And so we went and we, we talked to those girls, we had workshops with them and we picked actually four or five of our very good Sayogunis from that group. Yes. Uh, I remember uh, the, my whole experience in uh, Banaras, for instance, that uh, unfortunately we had to take the support of a local NGO. I don't want to name anybody now because some of them are well known. Uh, to do the recruitment and we said uh, this is our uh, this is the bottom line on the first day of the training the man comes and tells me aapka khana alag laga hua hai i said what do you mean alag laga hua hai we all eat together and uh, everybody will eat together then he said nahi saab wo to kisi ne kaha aap dalit cook se khana banwayenge i said yeah then they didn't like they didn't like the idea at all that we we wanted a dalit cook and we wanted her to be part of the group we wanted her to sit with us and eat and we wanted everybody to eat that food because that was a very important uh, methodology to identify women 
who are free of these biases, who are at least willing to question this. Yes. And, uh, and so we had a lot of PRA exercises, a lot of PRA techniques. In each state, it was done slightly differently. But I must say, we drew upon this vast literature of uh, participatory rural appraisal kind of methodologies. And we had games. We had the, those days, there used to be these very interesting games on hunger, on inequality, which were all very Polo Frarian games, which were very much part of the international adult uh, education literacy uh, literature. And we used to play these games. We used to have these exercises. We used to have these intense conversations. And at the end of the three days, we used to then decided who among this group can be can be hired. So it was a very, very difficult and uh, process. I must say that because most people in government said, it's a women's program, hai, so they didn't give us much importance. We did not have any great money to distribute, as you know. That was not the greatest saving grace of Maila Samakya. We didn't have buildings to build. We didn't have schools to build. We didn't have infrastructure money. So generally, the state governments adopted an approach of benign neglect. Then, um, so, and then when we involved all these NGO people to come and help us with these workshops, we wanted to have these workshops in NGO campuses so that we can we can do some of these things. It's very difficult to go into a government setup and say, Mujhe Dalit or Muslim cooks and they'll keep wondering why are you asking such a stupid question. So these are the kind of things we did. And once people were recruited, at least for the first six years, I can tell you, the induction training was very, very intensive. We used to have a 40-day induction training, residential training, where we tried to explore the roots of gender inequality to get them to internalize it. And I have written about it in great detail about the methodology. It's in a paper That's called Engendering Development, published in 96 or something in uh, Indian Journal of Gender Studies. Hmm. You can actually look at it. I've seen that. Hmm. Where I explained what was the whole philosophy of training. That Training is not about exchange of information. Training is something that you touch both the mind and the heart. And you can only touch the mind and the heart when the information that is presented to them does not come from you, but that comes from them. So when they themselves generate information, and then like, suppose we are sitting in a group of 20 women, we ask them, you know, when you want to talk about gender discrimination in food or gender discrimination in, in sending children to school, we take the, the experiences of those 20 women, put it up on the chart paper and analyze that. And once women have seen that, then they bring the national picture or something data from outside and show it to them. So you see, if the experience and the information and the data mirrors your own experience, then you internalize it much more. Because if, if training programs are not only about lectures, come and give one lecture, two lectures, three lectures, it's really about going through a, a transformation in the way you feel and the way you think and the way you're going to access information and the way you're going to process that information. So we actually designed these training programs as highly experienced. It was part of this whole experiential training uh, modules. It, again, that was not new. That is globally 
well-known technique of doing this kind of training. Uh, I must say I learned so much from someone like Gagan Sethi from uh, Ahmedabad in terms of doing these experiential trainings. And uh, so it was very, it, it, and once the training was done, we used to have these monthly meetings where, where at a cluster, women used to come to take their monthly honorarium. So when they came to take their honorarium, they stayed overnight because all our uh, district and offices were also places where we could stay, including me. I, when I went as a national director also, I used to stay there. And uh, where we used to stay, where we used to talk about each other's experiences. And, uh, and it used to be uh, like the, the, this is what later on Mr. Bodia uh, formalized in Lok Jumbish as you, have, you do practice and you do reflection on the practice and then you go back and do practice. So it's a cycle of practice, reflection, practice, reflection. And it's, it is through this cycle of practice and reflection which now even we're talking in teaching, na? the reflective teacher. Yes. That you need to have a forum where you can come and reflect, you can talk, and nobody's going to censure you when you say, I'm facing this problem. Uh, so it was that intensive process of training, which happened at the district levels, which happened at the state levels, and nationally we used to have several meetings. And I was like a mad woman who was going to all the districts one by one in rotation. And I used to spend a lot of quality time in the district, go with the women into the field, understand the program from down up. The problem with leadership often is that you only want to give instructions. I'll give you one very, uh, very important example. There was <clears throat> a once a call that came from one district, I don't want to name the district in Karnataka, that one of our Sayoganis was raped. And it was really a big issue for us. So I, ran, I flew down and along with Srilata, we went to the district. Of course, we talked to the collector. We, we, of course, filed a case and everything. But we also had these intensive village level meetings as to why did this happen? Now, it so happened that these two Sayoginis were living alone because obviously they, 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 were, not, they were not living with their families. And there were these whole bunch of men who had been, there used to be this video parlor, which used to show all these pornographic things, even in rural Karnataka. When they were walking back, they, somebody said, is in this little jhopadi, there are these two women who are staying. And they barged in and then what happened, happened. And we, we said, what is the approach? Do we, do we take out a protest in Bangalore city or do we take out a protest first in the village? Our first step was to take out, uh, have a meeting in the village, take out a Julus in the village, take out the Julus in the block, take out a Julus in the district, and then finally we reached Bangalore. So that, you know, you if you have, so let me continue that essentially yes. what we did was intensive training, intensive follow-up. And whenever there was a crisis, we tried to first address the crisis at the point where that crisis happened so that you get the entire village community on board trying to understand why that rape happened why why should it happen and so that you provide a environment in which the women workers who are working there start feeling confident 
so you see it's it's this whole our approach was that you cannot alienate yourself from the environment in which you're working the first degree of support that you need is from the people around you and it is only when people around you support you and start changing that you can sustain a momentum so when in 2000 and um, for 15 16 after myla samakya was closed down an organization went back to do a research on what impact it has on on the ground this is been done by cbps of bangalore you can ask them to give you the report they found that a lot of what we had done at that point of time the momentum in many villages still exists there are still strong women's groups and those women have got involved in self help groups some of them have become panchayat pramukhs they very local active in local panchayat elections so those women you see once it's like someone like me you know once i got i changed in the early 70s because of whatever inputs that i got in college and through my through the women's movement it has stayed with me my whole life long so today when my daughter in law always insists ki main karwa chauth rakhungi i find it very strange that my generation has questioned all these patriarchal systems and structures and here are these young girls who think it look look at it purely as a marketing as, and as a as a festivity which will help them uh, give them an opportunity to dress up for us things like any uh, asking women to take off the bindi after the husband died these things we fought against you know for us it was so much part of our of our struggle so i think the reason why the mahila samakya movement at least the has sustained for uh, as long as it has is because these women changed from within and they changed the people around them they got tremendous yes. support from their husbands from their fathers from their brothers from their community so i think somewhere we need to seriously look at our training methodologies um vimla can i just ask you you know a lot of what you're saying is so true and i know that the amount of enormous respect that uh, samakya at every level you know because they were just so diverse the group was diverse they brought in uh, so much more to their jobs than just you know just an annual work plan they their engagement was at a completely different level and it was very noticeable to many of us who were working in what at some points all of us have heard you know you work for the building banane wala program right which is what dpp was known for for a very long time but where was it that it didn't then move to the next level you see and why was it that it remained small was that the uh, deliberate or did it just happen because when i read that original concept note that, that was put together it makes me imagine a very different kind of uh, program because it had taken as you say wdp to the next level and there was certainly hints about taking it to it yet another level but that did not happen that is because mr bodia retired in 1992 I stayed on till 1993. I resigned and left, uh, partly also because there was a tremendous hostility in the ministry. 
Yes. And uh, they wanted to convert that into a IAS post because it was a director level post, which is one step above the deputy secretary. And the bureaucracy took it in. But I must say, as long as Vrinda Swarup was there, she maintained that spirit. But then came Shalini Prasad, who tried to maintain that to a certain extent. But after Shalini Prasad's time, uh, they lost the complete support of the education secretary, the joint secretaries. Everybody started looking at this program as some silly little program. But as you are probably aware that in 1998, when that nuclear whatever thing happened, then the Swedish government decided to, I'm sorry, the Dutch government decided Dutch to government. all money. But by that time, even the Royal Netherlands government continued because they had drawn up a contract for a particular amount of period. But after a period, the Netherlands government also withdrew because these were bilateral uh, issues. And then uh, UNICEF decided to come and uh, fund it. But the UNICEF funding was quite a disaster because UNICEF wanted to just make this an appendage to DPEP and Sarvashiksha Abhyan. But luckily the UNICEF funding did not come through and then DFID came in and they started funding it. And then DFID wanted its uh, all its um, outcome indicators. How many girls have you enrolled? How many girls have you done this? How many women have been? That kind of thing, they went into a very uh, mechanical, I think you should read the last evaluation report which was done by IIM Ahmedabad. It was the team was led by someone uh, Vijay Sheri Chand and uh, and Ankur Sarin. Uh, they explained to you what happened because the way the program from the top was being monitored, you they wanted to know kitni ko school mein kiya? No, how many people have you prevented from being dropped out? How many child marriages have you stopped? So it, they just started wanting to count that, even though there was this vibrant Nari Adalat which came up in Gujarat and then spread across the, across the country. It was a model which was developed by Maila Samakya and Baroda. And then it went all over the country. And today, Gujarat government has continued Maila Samakya only because they want the Nari Adalats to continue. But government of India in 2014, as soon as the Prime Minister Modi came uh, to power, the first decision they took was to discontinue this program. So between 1995, 96 and, two, and 2014. Tell me one thing, Pamela, when it goes into these kinds of corruptions, how much of that is about national leadership? Because in the initial years, even after you had withdrawn, uh, the state level leaders were really dynamic people. Uh, yeah, but they were all non-officials. Yes, and but they all had direct access into this and they tended to seem, at least for someone like me who was on the outside, they certainly seemed to have support, uh, whether it was from the bhavans in Delhi and also in the state capital. In some state cap states, they continue to have support of the bureaucracy. The IAS uh, cadre, whatever it is, whoever was the education secretary. But... In Gujarat, the main change comes because they questioned the very philosophy of Maila Samakya in many ways. And uh, support in the bureaucracy went down significantly. And not only that, they completely bureaucratized the program. All employees in Gujarat, Maila Samakya, most of them are now government employees on deputation. 
Yes. All the yes. old people have been removed. But in Uttar Pradesh, that did not happen. In fact, Uttar Pradesh had a benign neglect of this program. Bihar had a benign neglect of this program. Even though Bihar had started as part of DPEP, but still it was Assam, there was a benign neglect. I think this benign neglect was very good. It provided the local women leaders with space. In Kerala, there was benign neglect. Then there came a education secretary who felt that this was an inappropriate program for Kerala. Why? Because the Kerala Maila Samakya was raising issues of child sexual abuse. So they wanted to shut down the program. They practically shut it down. Then a new education secretary came and he revived it again. So these kind of things happened. But the fact, let us remember that this was a fringe program. This was never a mainstream program. Even till the last, I was never recognized as a person who belonged to the government. I was always told that uh, you non-officials are sitting here. So we non-officials were on one-year contracts. When IAS officers were drawing a salary of 40 or 50,000 a month, I was taking home a salary of 5,500. But for me, it didn't matter because I was so involved in the program that I said, doesn't matter what salary I'm getting. I refused to compare myself. And I was a director in the ministry. And my salary was not on par with the salary of deputy secretaries or even under secretaries or desk officers. Because this was a foreign funded sub separate program. It was a little bubble. It was a, it was a beautiful little bubble which government of India could always show everybody saying, hum gender karne. In every DPEP, JRM, they'll say, yes, yes, the government of India is very com committed to gender. Look, we have Maila Samakya. But did they involve Maila Samakya in, uh, in anything to do with teacher training or with do with making uh, schools more girls friendly and supportive? No, they did not. So we, we also need to understand that governments change, people change. People in governments change. Today, you won't come across officers like C.P. Sujaya or Anil Bodia or Anita Kol. You don't come across such people anymore or Amitabh Mukhopadhyay. Because today we have people who are just straight and narrow administrators. They don't want to take risks. These people took a lot of risks. Yes, now you realize. You didn't realize, at least certainly I didn't realize at that point that these were risky ventures. It seemed fairly stayed, stayed mainstream, non-revolutionary, non-radical initiatives, which even then did not seem to find root within the system. Why is it, you know, the kind of quality of leaders that you were able to bring in, really amazing. We went searching, we went to every college, university, we went to our own NGOs, we didn't do advertisement. We went around universities, we sent out letters to all universities saying that women who are interested, who are teaching, would like to come and be part of this. Government can organize a deputation for a few years, you will not lose your own job. That's how Kameshwari came as the first state program director of, of uh, Andhra Pradesh. Yes, and then you were able to get a nun to head the Bihar program. Which yeah, the Sister Sujita. She was yes. amazing. And then Sister Sabina. Hmm. Uh, and uh, I must say that uh, we had unusual people. That's because we used very unusual techniques to identify people. And our salaries were so low, Vijay Lakshmi, that nobody who wanted to get a fancy job would even think of coming close to Maila Samakya. 
You never had a problem hiring quality because of your salary. That's for sure. I think most people who came into DPP were very often people whom Samakya was uh, would actually say that we think they are more DPP types, which another way of saying that they're not actually good enough for us. So please take them, kind of thing. I often used to feel that way because we got a lot of people of uh, Samakya. We'd ask them for gender coordinators, and they would give us people who were good, but I often felt that they were probably people who did not make make the cut at Samakya, and so they came to us. That Kasturba Gandhi Balika Vidyalaya, the credit hmm. of KGBB actually goes to Brinda Swaroop. Yes, uh, completely, uh, and she doesn't get enough of it. Yeah, and but it was uh, inspired by Maila Samakya's experience. Okay, Maila Shikshan Kendras. Yes. Why are KGBB teachers still paid five thousand five hundred and ten thousand rupees? While teachers everywhere else are being paying forty thousand, forty-five thousand. So, when you see in the newspapers that teachers, KGB teachers, have gone on strike, what is this about saying that? Oh, औरतों को लिए पैसे की जरूरत नहीं. Mr. Bodia also believed that. Honestly, he used to say, "Well, women have husbands also earning, so it's a secondary income for them." Ah, okay. Hmm. There weren't any single women. Yeah, Sayogni is being paid one thousand three hundred. Now I think they were when when the program shut, they were being paid a little more, maybe eight or nine thousand. Our state program directors uh, earn twenty thousand rupees. But uh, but when I quit in nineteen ninety three, my salary was five thousand five hundred. Yes, more than. You see, it wasn't the salary which brought you into work every day, and it was not the salary. that uh, oh, you, you that is also one of the reasons why many people in in the states who were not committed did not look at my lesama yes but you know one of the thing which i often wonder is that samakya became like one of the biggest problems of a lot of uh, highly mission oriented uh, work which is done whether it's in the non profit sector or at that point even from within the state sector remained bonsais they were not able to they were not able to completely transform the system maybe some bits of it would get picked up like the msks became kgbvs and they've made a and wherever they're working well like jharkhand etc they they're doing amazing work and you know, the kind of women who are coming out who go into a kgbb and what comes out are so totally different But why is it that they don't why is it that it doesn't it's not able to influence the system completely and it's not that the system cannot be influenced if you sort of see the way uh, narega has influenced the system it's made a real difference on the ground you know the whole that gearing up which happens with say narega i haven't i didn't experience that with samakya at all that's because you need to have a solid support base within government and outside government to be able to mainstream something like this and uh, support base within government was fast shrinking because of the nature of the change in bureaucracy from 2014 to it went really head down and support from outside many of the feminist organizations and women's organizations started feeling that you know working with government is not much and like we have to work outside the many other feminist groups who had this very ambiguous relationship with maila samakya and so we 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 were just this ex maila samakya gang which 
were the support, but we were all people who were known as Maila Samakya people. Even today, people recognize me more as Maila Samakya than as anything else. But yes. Uh, if we can just loop up on Samakya. So if I look at Samakya, what I would, I mean, and this is someone who's, who's been a fellow traveler on that journey, as assessment is that somewhere it it remained energetic right up to the end. And there were there've always been people who've been huge supporters. Those who've left have, like you, never actually left. You know, that emotional connect, that involvement has remained. It's also engendered a complete community of fans and people who have and a lot of mimic researchers, trainers, community of it's a, it's a it's a it's a very large community. Yes, and yet what has happened is that it has never been replicated. Be replicated. Now, how can you replicate something like this? It started only because of somebody in government giving us the space to start something in government. Can you imagine the current BJP government ever talking about women's empowerment in this way? No. They will look at it as not in, in tune with traditional Hindu values or traditional something values. That's the problem. You need to have people in government who are serious about bringing about change. Today, we find a lot of commitment for getting girls in school and getting, um, improving learning and things like that. But I think the time for programs like this has gone because uh, now governments are uh, preoccupied with many other things. So is it that the time has gone for them or is it that what is needed right now in the area of gender is quite different? Has the forms of discrimination changed? Because I still remember when I first met you, you had told me about that experience of going to a school and finding that the girls had been sent in and then the teacher had said, Ye kya and whoosh, and everybody was back home and within a month. So those kinds of things almost never happen now. You know, it's, no, they uh, don't happen. Because they just they don't happen. But, does the, but this discrimination has changed. Has, have the forms of discrimination changed or has some aspects of discrimination actually oh, just I'll, disappeared? I'll make, put it differently. I'll say that certain social norms have changed. Social norms with respect to education, formal education, has changed all over the country. Um, because not only do parents want their girls to be educated, uh, parents also want educated daughter-in-laws. So therefore, there is a social norm for at least sending the girls right up to class 8, if not more. And even up to class 10. You look, you look at a place like Jharkhand, the, it, the uh, secondary school enrollment rate among girls in Jharkhand is higher than Gujarat. So there, mm -hmm. the, I think certain things, social norms have changed. I think technology, connectivity, uh, greater access to information has changed. Our society has gone through a lot of ups and downs while certain kinds of discrimination continue, for instance, I do feel that violence against women on the road, violence against women in, in public places has gone up. It's a lot more today than, than it used to be earlier. I, I remember as a, as a young girl, I used to find it very difficult in Trivandrum to walk back from somewhere later in the evening because men used to just stare at you, okay? Or in Hyderabad, okay? But these are the places I grew up in. Uh, but today, it's, you're not only being scared of somebody staring at you. No, it is something more than that. Yes. 
it's something more than that. The violence against women in public spaces has gone up. Now, every man and every uh, everybody wants not only an educated woman as a wife, but an earning member of a wife. But they don't want to share any household responsibilities. You, they, society has to change along with that. But that may not be the case with the upper middle class. Upper middle class values have changed quite a lot. But I must say that also we become so consumerist. Now you you talk to girls. I was really quite surprised when I was I was asked to give a lecture in a women's college just a year ago, and the girl said, "Ham to dori lenge," because my parents will not give me anything after I get married and go. I demand my dowry just now. I could never hear this something like this in 1970s. Even though now we have property laws which are equal. So I think the society has changed, social norms have changed, social expectations have changed. The way the government functions has, has also transformed a lot. And our bureaucracy now is just, just a yes man to the political leadership. So if there is a serious political will about something, yes, it will happen. So if you have a Sisodia, you will have a reform in education in Delhi. But if there was no Sisodia or uh, Atishi or somebody in the Ahmadmi party who was so committed to uh, improving the quality of education, maybe it no, would, nothing would have happened in Delhi. So I think uh, our society has changed. That's not just not in India. And look at the polarization. You see, in my time, I was hoping that by the time my son was an adult, these issues of caste, identity, discrimination would would disappear. But I'm finding it is not. I find young girls today saying, Amma, don't, um, don't, why are you keeping the same glass for the, uh, for the sweeper as you've got for me? Why, you, why don't you have a separate glass? I mean, I've had these kind of arguments in my house. I can't, couldn't have dreamt of it. So society is changing in different ways. Some caste identities are getting stronger. Some community identity stronger. At the same time, women want uh, women's expectation from women has gone up. You want we want our girls to be educated. We want them to be professionals. We want them to earn. We want our wives to bring home a second income. We want our wives to be able to teach our feed the children at home when they come back from school and do the tuitions. At the same time, you also do not want them to do many other things. So we are actually in a transitional society. Some of the old uh, ideas and old uh, practices are coming back. And to go back to the uh, to what Samakya was actually about, which was about looking at the world in a different way, which was about critical thinking, uh, imagining a different future. Uh, for themselves, their families, their communities. Would it need to be done differently now if one had to think about something like this? Because clearly there is a need. From what you're saying, there is a lack of that education which exists because if that education existed, then perhaps these kinds of markers of societal values that you're sharing would not, would not, be, would not be there. We need a different kind of intervention. 
but i think all of us need to go back to the drawing board in fact in around 2013 14 when we had when all the mila samakka people had invited me for a meeting on doing a reflection on whether this program needs to change because many of them said this that uh, our old way of doing things are not relevant for any of the young women because they are they are looking at life very differently uh yes i think we need to do it differently we need to do a lot and our society is far more stratified our society has become far more polarized and uh, so i think we need to address a lot of those issues and the privileged are not willing to give up their privileges anymore even in terms of they are in fact reinventing and and reinventing and re discovering a lot of the old uh, caste prejudices which they have started adopting so i do feel uh, i feel at a personal level i feel really sometimes that those of us who are now in in our late 60s all the battles that we fought for and I, when i see all these young girls who come into our homes as our daughters in law or our own daughters they have a completely different mindset and i think we need to look at the world from their eyes and then do something about it so we'll take that so up I tomorrow i don't have an answer vijay lakshmi i really yeah don't. i understand i guess none of us are but we are seeking that and one of the places uh, one of certainly the learning posts for all of us has been samakya because not just because of what it did on the ground but as you say what it did to individuals from the inside not just those who were a part of the program directly but a lot of other people who were uh, on the fringes of it and who watched it from the outside those are perhaps the learning spaces that we all need to look at to engage because clearly there is a need for some sort of intervention especially the government is this thing i don't know but no. i think even the women's movement has dissipated quite a lot have you noticed that there isn't a vibrant women's movement anymore no and i think a lot of people today would become very skeptical because of the kind of experiences like that you shared about what the younger generations motivations are and their own understanding of their space and their uh, desires are so different and their willingness to articulate it in the way that they do often makes people skeptical about the need for a women's movement that is in big cities but you know when you go to small towns and not so big cities and you when you interact with lower middle class women which i've had a chance to interact when i went to see some of the second chance program or when i've gone to see women uh, adolescent girls program uh, in rural areas i find that i find see so much more hope there so i think we just need to ignore this upper middle class group and work with people in 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 smaller towns and among lower middle class and poor women i think our future is there also perhaps you know even within this what we are perhaps looking at what you mentioned about the whole area of violence because there is an enormous increase in that and it's a hidden violence because it's become like uh, earlier you could walk you could ask for help and you probably would get it uh, even before the laws came into place you could you felt comfortable asking for help today it's almost like it there's a shame attached to asking for help and there's a lot of violence especially uh, in the past 7 8 months 
Domestic oh. violence among the rich is so much, but these girls don't want to talk about it, come out openly and talk about it and address it. I mean, I, I'm in touch with people who do some counseling and you know, it's quite high among all sections of society. But one uh, of the, yeah, somebody I was talking to was telling me that there's a growth in about 30 to 40% of reported cases. Which and that's what's frightening the living daylights out of them because see, if there is a reporting spike of that kind, that probably means that it's a lot more than that. The actual amounts of violence which uh, which they are going which they're going through and it's uh, it's severe violence. It's not. So we were talking about Mahila Samakya mm -hmm. and how it had plateaued after a point. At the ground level, you still have very highly motivated, energetic staff who went through intensive experiences as while being better, the recruitment process was intensive. And after a while, it plateaued. So where it had benign neglect, as you put it, it moved in a particular way, but it remained small. It did not really evolve into anything larger. Uh, though there was, I'm sure, considerable pressure from the ground to bring in elements of livelihoods, to especially as, as things started getting more difficult, especially after the, uh, in this century, when costs went up, incomes plateaued. The pressure which came from the ground, it didn't actually evolve into anything more than an education program. Uh, that's a tough uh, question because uh, at one level, uh, technically the program had expanded to almost uh, eight or 10 states. I'm not very sure exactly how many states. But the most interesting thing when the, in the phase, in the last phase, which is say from 2000 to about 2014 was that there was this huge, great demand for or change in attitude towards girls' education. And there was a demand for starting more Maila Shikshan Kendras. There was a demand for getting mainstreaming girls into formal schools. Somehow the, the social and uh, economic terrain had shifted in the country. And uh, as a result, the, the priorities and needs of the people had also changed a lot. For example, in a place like Andhra Pradesh, the demand for uh, post-secondary education also went up significantly because they saw tremendous opportunities in, in the IT sector. And uh, to a certain extent, maybe that also happened in, in other states, but not linked directly to the IT sector. Uh, so therefore, uh, it actually, it was a two-pronged two kind of uh, uh, phenomena or impact. One was, of course, the social attitudes towards girls, girls' education changed quite uh, dramatically by the 2000s. And two, 
there was this uh, tremendous awareness of the lack of post-secondary educational opportunities. And that was an area in which Maila Samakya really did not have any mandate to uh, work with government to enhance uh, post-secondary educational opportunities. Uh, there were these many, as you are probably aware, there were many uh, adolescent girls groups that were formed and they became quite strong in the 2000s. Yes. But uh, the tragedy was that uh, the program itself did not have the capacity or the mandate uh, or the or the wherewithal, actually, to address this uh, demand for um, skill-oriented or job-oriented training. And uh, as you would see in that uh, book that we wrote on cartographies of empowerment, you, you find this point which is being made over and over again, that the women uh, had moved, um, while they continued to fight for fight against domestic violence or, or uh, desertions or, or things like that in their domain, that continued, but the demand from the women and the girls was to do with formal education. And there, Maila Samakya just did not have the wherewithal at all. So in a way, uh, as I told you before 2014, some of us got together to uh, think about what direction Maila Samakya should take. And this point came up over and over again, that Maila Samakya really needs to get into new areas. As, and as you are probably also aware that there was a, this huge push for self-help groups. But that didn't matter because there were other people who were doing that, whether it was the, whether it was the government-led programs or uh, programs led by uh, non-governmental organizations. But in the education domain, I think uh, Maila Samakya just could not respond because getting girls into school had happened in most of the MS areas. Getting school girls to go up to class eight also had almost happened. Many more girls were actually going into secondary education. But after that, what? And that is when I think um, um, at least some of us who had been involved in, in research in that area found that in many uh, girls' higher secondary schools and in many tribal areas, science subjects were not even taught to girls in classes 11 and 12. So if the girls wanted to cash in on the increasing demand for auxiliary nurse midwives or ASHA training or, or even lab assistants and people getting into medical and uh, associated uh, technical field, which requires some amount of uh, training, whether mm -hmm. in terms of a lab technician or a nurse, uh, we found that uh, Maila Samakya just could not respond to that. And, and obviously the program uh, desperately uh, required a rethink and a redesign in order to move with the times. Because as I told you yesterday, uh, the observation of Dr. Sharda Jain that you know the tragedy was not that people didn't want the girls to go into education, but the tragedy was that the kind of opportunities available and the quality of education available uh, left them very disheartened. So this was how the program, actually I uh, sometimes feel that maybe closing down of the program 
must have been quite inevitable because after a point, uh, women, when there are very, and you're not expanding into more and more territories because the government had clearly said that uh, there would be a withdrawal plan after a, the program has been active in a particular area for more than uh, 10 years or 10, 15 years, then you have to withdraw from that area. So it basically means starting over fresh in new areas, mobilizing women, but uh, but the, but women themselves had moved on by 2000. Yes. Um, and the issues that surround women had also uh, uh, changed while some of the old issues continued, like violence, like desertions, like, like uh, men taking on multiple partners and things like that. But uh, I must say that um, if Maila Samakya really needed to have continued, um, it would have been very important to go back to the drawing board and design a program that is that actually uh, responds to the needs and aspirations of adolescent girls and young women. So maybe it's this is a good time to transition to the next uh, round of discussions. As you said, in 2000, by that time, the social environment had changed, girls and women's aspirations had changed, even families' aspirations and how they perceived the role of uh, daughters, wives, sisters had started changing, even within families. Was our education system geared for that? That shift in gears which had happened within families, was the education system able to accommodate that because even in the 2000s you would not really see a difference in the quality in how the education system was looking at girls and women the old uh, stereotypes existed you see the education system did not respond as you will uh, are probably aware in 2003 is when sarva shiksha abhiyan was really launched in a very big way Mm. And Sarva Shiksha Abhiyan was still focusing on elementary education. Okay. Mm. It was only in 2009 that when they saw so many more children moving from elementary to secondary, that the Rashtriya Madhimik Shiksha Abhiyan was introduced in 2009. Now, uh, when you introduce, uh, basically there was a realization in government that you have to expand the opportunities for secondary education. And you have to make uh, secondary education available to all children, not just girls. So therefore, the RMSA, when it started, RMSA is Rashtriya Madhyamik Shiksha Abhyan. When RMSA was started, the objective was to uh, enhance the ac uh, access of young boys and girls to secondary education. But you see, RMSA had its own limitations. Um, to begin with, there were states like Uttar Pradesh, Rajasthan, um, uh, Madhya Pradesh, um, uh, or Jharkhand, or places like that, where majority of your um, secondary schools were anyway government-run and government-managed. So therefore, what they did was they, they tried to upgrade a lot of uh, elementary schools to secondary schools. There was a very detailed study that I did in Jharkhand in um, 2018-19, which found that uh, they had upgraded uh, thousands of uh, elementary schools into secondary schools. 
But do you know what I found on the ground? That they had upgraded the schools, but not a single teacher had been appointed. In fact, the new appointments in upgraded uh, elementary schools to secondary schools in Jharkhand was practically 0%. And in 2019, uh, the, the, the teacher vacancy rates in secondary education was close to 70% in Jharkhand. Why did that happen? Because they expanded the secondary education sector in leaps and bounds, but they did not provide teachers. Now, why did they not provide teachers? That is a very big question. I'll come to that later. Uh, something very similar happened in Rajasthan and Uttar Pradesh. But this did not happen in Karnataka or Tamil Nadu because in Karnataka and Tamil Nadu, the secondary education infrastructure had gradually started expanding starting from the late 1990s because of uh, the demand for that. So in the South, there is a combination of government-run secondary schools, uh, government-aided secondary schools, and private secondary schools. So therefore, combination of three uh, actually worked uh, quite well in, in Tamil Nadu, in Karnataka, in at least in, uh, no, excepting no, uh, the Northern Karnataka, Kerala. Kerala had a very, very high uh, number of aided um, secondary schools. So the access was not a big issue in the, in the southern states for secondary education. Access was a big issue in the northern states and especially the Hindi belt. But when they uh, upgraded the secondary schools, uh, they did not provide adequate teachers. Now, now uh, same with Bihar also, the, the teacher shortages in secondary uh, education was very high. And there seemed to be a kind of a discri systemic discrimination against girls only secondary schools and also secondary schools located in very remote rural or tribal areas where they basically provided only art subjects and did not provide either commerce or science in class 11 or 12. Uh, interestingly, in a place like Gujarat, the expansion of secondary education happened purely in the private sector. The government did not invest much in expanding the government secondary school sector. So as a result, if you look at the uh, DICE data of 2018-19, which is the one which I have the latest, you find that um, girls' participation in secondary education in Gujarat is among the lowest in the country. It is really quite low. On the other hand, in many, many districts of West Bengal or Assam, or all over South India, the girls' participation was as good as boys, or in, in, in Assam, it will, you will really be surprised to know that the dropout rate among boys was higher than girls. So there is a trend uh, from Assam, West Bengal, including Bangladesh, where the demand for secondary education was very, very high. And you know what a big transformation it made in the, in the Bangladeshi society. Uh, but I think the uh, Rashtra Madhimik Shiksha Vyan did not take on board the huge challenge of enhancing access to equal quality and equal range of secondary education. And I think the demand uh, in rural areas and many areas is very high. Now, why is it very high? You may also have uh, realized that in the 2000s, 
job opportunities for young women actually went up. There were lots and lots of uh, Asha who were being appointed. Uh, the number of CDPOs and Anganwadi workers and all, you know, the older ones were retiring, so they were getting newer ones because, you know, ICDS started in 75. So there was a large number of old Anganwadi workers who were retiring. And also in the informal sector, the amount of people, uh, amount of opportunities for women with secondary education uh, appreciably changed. And there was a positive environment and feeling among the women that if we, we shouldn't stop at class eight, we should go up to class, class 12. And this came out very clearly because I led the Government of India evaluation of the Kasturubai Gandhi Balika Vidyale program in 2013 and 2017. Um, 2013 and I'm sorry, 2009 and 2013. Um, and what we found was in every single KGB that our, our team visited all the states in India, and in every state, we visited two districts and tried to cover almost all the KGBVs. The national evaluation report is available on the government's website. Now, we found everywhere that the demand was, please upgrade KGBV to class 12. Please upgrade uh, KGBV to class 12. Please ensure that we have a science lab. Please ensure we have a library. Please ensure that we have teachers who can teach us maths and science. Now, the interesting thing is for us to understand is that the education landscape was changing, the social landscape was changing, but the ability of the government to respond effectively to the demand for both secondary education, higher secondary education, and post-secondary education. Government's response was very, very tardy is all I would say. I don't think they were really thinking about it. And there was no there was no plan. There was really no plan. And that has been the tragedy because since um, the middle of 2005, six onwards, I have focused a lot on secondary education. And I find the situation quite pathetic uh, because you have rural schools with no laboratories, with no libraries, with no maths teacher, with no science teacher, with no biology teacher, chemistry teacher. So you have this huge problem in north, northern part of New India, but you don't have a shortage of science teachers and maths teachers in Maharashtra or any of the southern states. I doubt if there is such a shortage even in um, Goa, uh, you know, that whole belt. Uh, but uh, Eastern India, there was still a challenge and shortage, but it was not so skewed as in Northern India, including Gujarat, in terms of uh, women's access to secondary education. But my only um, uh, realization, or should I say uh, worry, was that if we don't, if we as a society, we as a government, because I think it is our government, we as a government, if we don't respond to the post-secondary education needs of young people, then we are we reach a kind of dead end. The time that you're talking about is, and you spoke about the shift in the 
uh, social landscape, in the educational landscape. There was this was also a time when India became almost a laboratory for a lot of research groups rather than universities who started coming into India to look at, to do research on education. So the research landscape had changed. Was that a part of this shift in the government's thinking on what its responsibility is? As the kind of studies which were being done were often not either asked for by the government, were not seen as a need by the government, but were coming in through no, I, I beg to disagree because the bulk of the research in the 1990s uh, where even uh, foreign consulting companies were involved and that is a time we also set up ERU consultants hmm. was mostly commissioned research. Commissioned research by what I mean is that the priorities of money for what kind of research was available was determined by the government. So in, in our, when ERU was first formed, our first study was um, was something that we bid for, which was funded by DFID India. And it was on uh, strategies for getting children back to formal schools. The topic was already decided. The theme was decided. It was only that the DFID at that point of time gave us, uh, put out a bid and uh, uh, you see when, when not only DFID, World Bank and and other foreign donors here who were involved with the government DPP program and later on with SSA, they used to put out these bids. And when they put out these bids, we used to um, bid for this. And uh, I must tell you that uh, unfortunately, university departments like the JNU Education Center, Zakiruzen Center or Delhi University, none of them used to bid for any of this. So this whole bidding for research grants, which, which came as part of the foreign funding in education, were left to private uh, consultant, consultancy organizations or private research institutes. And I remember when I, after this DPEP uh, first study was commissioned, uh, I, I, ERU was very new. We, this was our first project. We had just set it up. But we won the bid because of our methodology. And at that time, a senior professor in Delhi University, Anita Rampal, <clears throat> uh, met me and said uh, I was responsible for privatizing uh, educational research. So I asked him, which way am I responsible for privatizing educational research? Uh, it was a bid which was open. And uh, because of um, the fact that none of us who are part of ERU had a formal uh, quote unquote PhD in education. We could never get jobs in formal universities. So we decided to set up ERU and we decided not to set up an NGO. We said, we have to do research. So let us set it up as a research, consulting company. I said, we bid and it was an open bid. Why is it that you as a university did not uh, apply for the bid? And this happened uh, not only to me, but to a lot of other organizations that came up which started bidding for this kind of research. I don't think we set the agenda at that time. No. We were responding to us agenda which was set by the donors and the government. Yeah, I get, I get that. The other 
did and after a while uh, from the indian it also became a lot of the foreign consortium started coming in and they came in with a different who looked at uh, education from a management lens so the issues of say productivity rather than rather than equity issues it was productivity issues efficiency norms those started taking greater priority in I, in I, what was researched while uh, to a certain extent it is true because this was also the global trend at that time of looking at education from that particular perspective uh, but nothing stopped uh, the indian companies uh, i must say eru managed to we got every single research project we bid for from 1996 till almost 2010 hmm. we, we were very uh, choosy about what we would bid for so there was no nothing to stop you from raising issues of equity raising issues of quality raising issues of teacher motivation teacher how teachers are positioned in the education system there was nothing to stop you it is it is the if there was a research which was funded by world bank and uh, kartik murlidharan and and people like that took it up they they came up with different uh, uh, analysis and argument and and we as uh, eru took up a different project from the same world bank we came up with different uh, because we are uh, we came from a different perspective the eru research group uh, essentially uh, consisting of kameshwari jandialia nishi merotra and myself we were the three core people and and most of our researchers were drawn from the ex maila samakya circuit or from uh, ngos like we worked very closely with ekalavya we worked very very closely with uh, shanta sinha and her organization so or uh, and for instance when i did the teacher study um, i took a lot of help from bgvs in in kerala so we our conclusions were different than the conclusions of uh, kartik murlidharan and uh, so therefore it is the ideological perspective brought in by the researchers i don't think there was a a priori uh, uh, a priori this uh, a decision by the government to only give it to people of one ideological predilection uh i would like to give one example uh, unicef's uh, regional office that is unicef rosa as you call it uh wanted to do a big study on um, how the school sanitation program rolled out across south asia and we not only got the bid for india but we also got the bid for coordinating the whole uh, regional one so we developed the research tools and everything at the end of that study we found that in the school sanitation program uh, especially our our site of study was uttar pradesh because unicef had already decided that uh, was that uh, you know the sanitation program became a site of tremendous caste discrimination only certain kinds of children were asked to clean the toilets while a different set of children were asked to fill water and uh, one kind of children from one set of social groups were asked to do the sweeping and cleaning 
while the another set of group was asked to help out with uh, um, with the things which involved touching uh, food items for instance or water and when that report came out i must say uh, the joint secretary at that time um, uh, was um, was vrinda i think uh, in uh, in the ministry the ministry actually took it very seriously but when we went to make a presentation in up we were abused like mad saying that you are making this up and there is no caste based discrimination and because there was such a furore then mhrd decided to do a study themselves through their uh, technical support group on inclusion and exclusion in schools and classrooms in india and they asked me to come in as a principal investigator so here i was who had landers from eru i went and actually as a researcher on behalf of the technical support group of uh, ss sarva shiksha abhiyan i led that study and uh, one of the results of that study is the article that i published in epw about how dalit and tribal children are treated in india hmm. now that study was commissioned by mhrd and mhrd took that uh, uh, the findings of that study quite seriously some states took it more seriously than others but some states just dismissed it outright they said uh, we are biased and qualitative study and uh, we are just out there but you would be surprised that uh, in the same uttar pradesh uh, i think at some point of time mayawati wanted our up report to be translated into hindi and then distributed across because it showed the extent of caste based discrimination in the water sanitation program so what here i'm what i'm trying to uh, tell you is that uh, let us not paint the entire research um, uh, research landscape uh, with the same color it depends a lot on who is doing the research and which group is doing the research if was it oxford consulting group or was it a cambridge group or was it a, a group from the us or was it a group uh, was it a group of world bank consultants even among world bank consultants there was a lot of difference you have someone like uh, tara bethe's own work on on teachers which is so grounded and which doesn't uh, call for having more, only contract teachers and things like that but you have uh, venki subramaniam and uh, kartik murli dharan studies which are basically plugging for uh, plugging for more and more contract teachers because it is cost effective so it was a very mixed bag but i must say that uh, after a particular point of time the officers in the ministry changed and uh, to my great dismay that the current uh, a uh, batch of officers at least for the last 8 years or 7 years are not interested in reading research they're not interested in fact there was this research which was commissioned by unicef on the request of government on it was called as to what are the formative study in eight states to understand what are the factors that impede or facilitate participation in secondary education eru again won that bid and we did that study and that report has been put on the shelf by unicef not because people in unicef did not appreciate the study 
It is because the government decided that they didn't want to look at it. Because that report clearly said that having more government secondary schools is a very important facilitating factor for girls' participation. And the fact that Gujarat, only 11% of secondary schools are run by government and are, are very low cost fee is the reason why Gujarat has one of the lowest secondary education participation rates among girls. Why? Because in Uttar Pradesh and in Jharkhand and in, and in um, Chhattisgarh and, uh, and Rajasthan, majority of secondary uh, schools are run by the government or in some states are government aided, which means the fee is very low, girls' participation is very high. So it is not that UNICEF did not take it seriously. In fact, UNICEF took the report extremely seriously because after we did that, they are they actually commissioned us to do a gender atlas. And this gender atlas was commissioned again by MHRD. It was an open bid, which, uh, which uh, ERU bid for and we got it. And that gender atlas is still up on the UDI's website, which also brought out the same issues that the ratio of, or the presence of a strong government quote unquote public school system, I mean public means I mean government school system is one of the most important uh, facilitating factors for larger participation of poor people in secondary education. Privatization actually goes against it. Even uh, the research done by people uh, in Asim Premji Foundation, excellent quality research as to, does this voucher system actually make any sense? No. Which people are talking about. Obviously it doesn't. How can you have a voucher system in rural uh, Jasalmer where you, you, mostly you have only government schools? And what does a choice children have? And uh, so therefore this whole demand by some people for privatizing education or giving vouchers and things and school choice, these people, uh, it has been completely uh, uh, shown as being ineffective in, in high poverty situations. And this is not just in India. Look at the very, very valuable evaluations of the charter schools of the US or what happened in South America with respect to these school choices. The fact remains that there is a group of people, of people in education, both in the private sector, I call myself a private sector person, or even in the government sector, who sincerely believe that government of India and the state governments have to take the primary responsibility for school education. Yeah. Only then will we be able to achieve any kind of universal access. And, and that is why it is so important to improve the quality of government schools. I don't think privatization is an answer. Uh, Vimla, if I might just intervene here and ask you, you know, the point that you're raising about charter schools is voucher ideas had already been discredited in other scenarios from where we have learned regularly, even when setting up DPP Samakya, the learnings came from very similar situations. And why would it be that discredited ideas, which had been shown to not work, and there was high quality research available on that, how come despite that, from within the governments, 
it was possible to push these discredited ideas because these were these were india's children who were turned into guinea pigs for these kinds of research projects how did that happen because in the no, early no, no, 90s, no, 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 there people, was a lot of uh, you know there was a lot of support for a particular kind of research and there was also very clear and strong government intervention to ensure that a certain kind of research which was coming up with uh, did not fructify did not get access to government schools how come those kinds of controls got weakened what happened i i, I don't think i'm the right person to talk about it but i'll tell you what i think okay i may, i may be completely wrong i think that there were some individuals both in the niti aayog and in mhrd um i'm talking about officers who had cozied up a lot with the private sector in fact there was a joke going around that mhrd was being run by a csr outfit which was always sitting in the office of the secretary and that was with this uh, constant joke so it was these individuals who gave a lot of push to this kind of research but let me also say that there were a equally strong vociferous number of government officials state government officials who refused to let this experiment be tried out in their state the only state that agreed to was andhra pradesh the school choice study and all this happened first in andhra pradesh but even in rajasthan they did stuff right i mean some Not of that very very small nothing yeah. of the scale in which it happened in andhra pradesh yes uh, because i think that uh, i'm telling you in government who sitting on that seat makes a big difference so i don't think i would say that government as a whole is responsible for pushing something like this yes there were some officers in both niti aayog and and mhrd who wanted to push this idea but they did not succeed because as you see in the new education policy of 2020 that idea has no space there is still a huge commitment within the bureaucracy within a very majority of educational researchers including people from csr bodies who are committed to strengthening the government school system i'll give you one example like i never understood why a lot of our leftist friends from delhi university used to keep saying pratham is privatization oriented which is so ridiculous because at you read pratham's report from 92005 onwards they have never promoted privatization they have always focused on strengthening the government school system but just because they are a ngo which did a survey like asar they were labeled as being pro privatization uh same thing uh, was said about a large number of other csr organizations uh asim premji foundation piramal foundation airtel foundation you i can give you many many more names none of them what are they working on look at the work which is being done by say the airtel foundation bharti airtel foundation they are working to strengthen government schools yes they are also running private schools separately 
but they are hurting to strengthen and partner to strengthen government schools. The big privatization push actually has come in three areas. One is the technology game. They want, there is a huge demand for privatization so that educational technology, educational content can be privatized. And you know that government doesn't have the expertise, nor does NCERT as yet. So therefore there was one. Second, the other big push was for private players to be involved in teacher education. You know from 2003 onwards, when NCTE, National Council for Teacher Education, liberalized the norms for people to set up teacher training institutions, there was a 600% rise in the number of private teacher training institutions. And a large number of them were set up by politicians and or, or ex-politicians or people who have some link with the government. And you, that is one of the reasons why in, in 2020 national education policy, there's a very clear statement that they, there is a very important need to review these private institutions and make sure that only high quality institutions which are linked to universities should be allowed to exist. So teacher education was an area where privatization, the push for privatization happened. Uh, there is a very, very good report by Dr. Krishna Kumar, uh, who did an evaluation of this impact of this policy. And that is something which has been uh, buried. Nobody wants to talk about it. But if anybody wants to understand the impact of privatization on teacher education, they, it is important to read Krishna Kumar and et al. It's a, it was a committee report. Then the third area where I think privatization got a huge, huge push is to set up these PPP so-called model schools in, in, um, in every block. Now we already have Navodhya Vidyalaya in every district. So if government wanted to set up Navodhya Vidyalaya in every block, they have the capacity to do it. But when they put out this bid for PPP, uh, incidentally, I was on that committee which MHRD had set up uh, to discuss this. Uh, the private players only wanted to pick highly developed blocks or urban areas. Nobody wanted to go into Dantewada or nobody wanted to go into Jasalmer. Nobody wanted to go into Bara. Nobody wanted to go into any of these remote difficult areas which is crying for good quality schools. Because a PPP means you can only make money when you go to an area where there is a lot of, lot of uh, demand for this kind of education. And there is some amount of urbanization because they will not be able to get teachers. Suppose they set up a PPP school in Dantewada, they're not going to get uh, teachers, they felt. So that idea fell through. You know, the reason why it fell through <clears throat> was because there were no takers. <coughs> government wanted to start 2,000 PPP uh, schools, residential schools and block headquarters. That whole idea fell through because the private sector was not interested in going into the more difficult areas. So I think, you know, this whole public-private uh, debate in India is a very complex debate. I will not blame government completely. Yes, there are lobbies 
which tried very hard. But I must say to the credit of successive governments for the last 30 years, that they have been able to resist it. Come what may. Yes, in Gujarat, there is still very, very low part, low uh, number of government secondary schools. But that is not the case in the rest of the country. So I think we need to be careful by uh, trying to paint everybody in the same brush. No. I just want, as we winding up this, I wanted to just look at what's been happening over the last, year almost now which is what the pandemic and the school closures have meant for education of the underprivileged and especially of those of girls there's been a huge push now for online education you see at first except for the asar study which was done by telephone mm -hmm. there is no hard data available but I am part of certain networks, um, which is basically NGO networks. And the feedback that I, I get is that there has been a huge number of small private schools which have closed down, yeah. both in rural and urban areas. And these are the private schools that were catering to the poor or catering to the no, or lower middle class because they could not sustain. That is point number one. Point number two is that there has been a very large number of children who have migrated from urban areas to rural areas. Till the livelihoods of the parents stabilize, I don't think these children are gonna come back to urban areas. So there is going to be a very heightened uh, demand for enrollment in government schools. Unfortunately, I don't think our governments are preparing for that. And third, this online education has increased inequalities multifold. You see, I, even in the best of richest of schools, children have had a lot of trouble coping with computers at home and with high speed internet. Can you just imagine the plight of children who are trying to work through bad networks, small phone through which they're trying to have classes, WhatsApp classes. I think it has been uh, one of the most difficult uh, situations with respect to education. In fact, the CNN uh, has this very interesting article day before yesterday. <laughs> On the whole world, what has happened to education and how it has increased inequalities. Even in the richest of countries, online education has increased inequalities. And in a recent uh, conversation that I've been having with some international educators, email conversation, I think what governments need to do is when schools reopen, for the first 10 days, only teachers should come into the school and all teachers need to be sensitized to the trauma that the children have gone through. I don't think even my own grandchildren who go to a good school have access to, they are traumatized by not going to school. They're missing their friends. This online education after 45 minutes makes no sense to them. And uh, it is very difficult for a class one, five-year-old, six-year-old child to uh, concentrate online for more than 15, 20 minutes. 
Now, this is not just our Indian experience. This is an experience which is global. So I think we need to get teachers together and to sensitize them to this. Then we need to run a bridging program in schools for at least three months where children are grouped into uh, ability groups. For maths, it may be a different ability group. For, uh, for language, it may be a different ability group. So that you bring all children up to the same level, working with children in small groups, and only then can regular classes resume. Now, my, my uh, worry is that most state governments, I have been writing about this, I have been talking to officers, I've been very proactive on this, saying that please plan before you reopen schools. And after reopening, don't go straight on into the syllabus. Have a three-month or four-month bridging strategy whereby you teach and work with children in small groups and help all children catch up. And then you go back to your schooling as normal. And a lot of educationists agree with me on this. And in the recent uh, Delhi uh, government conference, which is still going on, uh, I said this and many others, not just, I'm, I'm, I'm just one of the many people who are saying this. So I do feel in this post-pandemic thing, we have to address inequality at various levels. One major level is in learning because all children haven't had access to learning. What happens to children who have no reading material at home? Two, there is tremendous inequality in nutritional status. Because of the economic distress, we may have many more malnourished children. And three, I'm coming to girls. I don't know how many girls will ever come back. I don't know how many girls would have been married off in this period. In fact, in this um, NGO group that I am part of, they said that there has been a lot of distress among girls calling and saying, Ki hamari shadi wale hain. we need to do something about it. And I think we need to be very careful. Or there has also been a lot of trafficking of children into child labor. Child labor has gone up. Shanta Sinha has been talking about it every day. That how many more, how many children have got back into work? Now, once they have got back into work in a situation where wages are low, where adults are earning very little, parents are just um, doing what they can, the children are also supplementing, however meager it is, it's going to be an uphill task to get these children out of work into school. So I think these are the three challenges. Apart from that, there is another dimension. Like after the Kutch earthquake, I spent a lot of time in Kutch. Um, the, you know, you need a lot of psychosocial counseling uh, after this kind of trauma. The last eight months has been traumatic. It's been traumatic for children. It's been traumatic for teachers. You have, I've been talking to teachers who've been forced to do these online classes and WhatsApp classes. They're saying, The teachers are really quite distressed. I don't think I'll blame my teachers here. I will, in fact, I feel we need a huge reach out, outreach program for teachers to listen to them, listen to their experiences and help them to work with children to bridge. 
So we'll need at least four months at the minimum to work towards a bridging for children to come up to a level when they can get back into a large group and go through classes as usual. This is all I have to say on the pandemic. I know it's it's been, there are these several education collectives. There's India Education Collective. There is this uh, uh, Transforming Rural India Collective. There is these other collectives which are uh, which are linked to several CSR where they're in touch with teachers, teachers unions. This is the feedback I'm getting from the ground, but there is no real data. But I'm waiting for the, as if Premji University is doing a very, very big study on the impact and the data has not yet come out. So once the data comes out, we'll have little more. As of now, we only have ASAR 2020. Uh, which is quite an incredible effort to talk to parents and children as to what was happening during the pandemic. Do you see this? Are we going to live in a hybrid educational environment now? Is that the, is that the future? Because there are a set of people who are who do not see us ever going back to a completely brick and mortar no, situation no, no, again. No. Nowhere in the world. I think we'll come back to education. You know, the, among the most advanced countries in the world with respect to technology, take South Korea, take Japan, take Singapore. Every single country believes that there is no substitute to face-to-face -to -face interaction between children and teachers. I am not, I don't think anybody is talking about purely online. Online can work at higher education levels. Online uh, can work at, at a different level, but not in school education. And I don't see that happening. So and not even a hybrid model, which a lot of the private sector has been advocating that you link oh. partly, partly brick and mortar, partly online. That is no, not right. I don't think so, because... The, I don't think any of the serious private sector people are talking about it. It is only these technology companies which are talking about it. I don't see it. I think there is no substitute for face-to-face -face interaction between children and teachers. Teachers are precious and children will not be able to learn well without this face-to-face -face interaction, not only with teachers, but with each other. Tell me when you and I were children, how much we learned from each other. Suppose I did not understand a particular thing in a particular subject. I always had a best friend or a good friend who used to at lunchtime explain it to me. And how, how can we uh, remove learning from that ecosystem where children are learning from the teacher, teacher is learning from the children and children are learning from each other. It's not a one way process. And I don't think the technology company's wish list of everything going online is going to bear fruit. Nowhere, not, not even in the US of A. If I ask you to just visualize a future, say 10 years from now, the pandemic is over and we are now looking at the, at say the 2032 census or 31 census, what is it that we would be looking at uh, as the reality for girls and women, given that many things have changed and many more things will change and not necessarily for the better? 
You know, one of the things that will definitely change is that the gender gap in educational participation will come down very, very significantly. It's already come down. And my, while sex ratios may be coming down, there is a shortage of girls in all of North India and, it, and this silly phenomena is going across everywhere else in, the world, in our country. But I, I see that uh, gender gap will not only decrease, but like it has happened in the US, like it has happened in Europe, <clears throat> many more women will be in higher education than men. Um, and especially uh, in, in, the, in the teaching profession, especially in colleges and universities as professors, in sciences, in language, I also feel that there is going to be a complete resurgence of interest in arts and culture. And I think women are going to play a very important role in that because it's so much part of our society which has not been part of it. Similarly in sports, I think women are going to do well because the momentum will pick up. Yes, we may still have uh, huge problems related to violence against women, we may have a backlash because women are doing so well. You know, in the, in the US and in many Caribbean countries, among the Afro-American communities, girl, women's and girls' participation in education is much better than boys. Boys have actually started dropping out and actually entire households are managed by women. It's a, it's a, it's a, female-headed household syndrome, which you are seeing there among those communities. And you can see that even in our rural areas already. So I think the future is bright for women and girls, but I, I really hope and pray that we will not have the kind of huge clashes and violence and backlash, sexual violence backlash against women. That would also be a reality. Thank you so much, Vimla. That's It's been a wonderful conversation, stimulating, encouraging, and inspiring as always. Thank you. Thank you very much. This podcast is a labor of love, which would not have been possible without the support of many friends who have helped to make it possible. Chaya Pandey, gifted graphic artist. The cover art is all her doing. Sujata Raghavan, the MC. Her introduction you will hear on every episode. Abhira Majit and Vishrut Pandey. Audio editors, mixers, video editors. Young men who have helped me understand this new world of podcasting. And Arvind Ramamurthy, my guide to all things technical. Join me next time in another episode of The Rogue. Thank you.